So the problem with investing, like just like if you're in like a combat situation or really anything that's just stressful, is is you you don't want to be going into those situations without like a highly rigid systematic plan because if you do the minute there's any amount of stress the likelihood that you're going to make a bad decision just keeps ratcheting up and up and up especially as you see your stock going down you know your life savings is blowing up my guest today is dr wesley gray after serving as a captain in the U.S. Marine Corps, Wes received a Ph.D. in finance from the University of Chicago. He then worked as a finance professor at Drexel University. His research in how to make money in the stock market is cutting edge, and that led him to found Alpha Architect in 2010. Alpha Architect is an asset management firm dedicated to empowering investors through education. He's the co-author of three outstanding books on investing, Quantitative Value, do-it-yourself financial advisor, and quantitative momentum. I recently sat down with Wes and we talked about how he uses different investment strategies that are fully transparent, evidence-based, and systematic to produce outstanding returns and how any investor can do the same. Wes, thanks so much for being on the show, man. I really was looking forward to this. I think since we spoke about last year and asked you about this, coming on the show, and I'm glad we're all settled down and I get to spend some time with you. Yeah, no, appreciate you having me and uh, look forward to chatting again. Yeah, I think the last time we worked together on a project I think you did for us uh, was about, I can't believe it was close to 12, 11 years ago in 2010 or so. No, and yeah, I remember right after that we hosted uh, Richie. Yeah, we, we did the tour of the Wharton professors. Yeah, that was uh, that was my son. That was probably eight years ago. Yeah, my yeah, my son so. Richie. Just to fill those in, my son Richie had a perfect score on the on the SAT in math. Brilliant guy, and that was the year of the Common App. Applied to all the Ivies. Totally dejected that he didn't make one Ivy. So I called my buddy Wes, who was teaching University at Drexel at the time, right? Drexel University had all his yeah, buddies in yeah. Wharton. And I said, Richie, let's go see Westman. He'll set your head straight. And you set his head straight, which was great, which thanks so yeah. much. <laughs> thanks yeah, I, much. I, I remember we talked to the profs and uh, you asked them all kinds of realistic practitioner questions <laughs> and they couldn't address them. And, and I was like, I told you, just because you're a professor doesn't mean you know much. Uh, <laughs> right. And th those guys were, those guys were all your Wharton buddies, right? Yeah, yeah, there are a lot of old Chicago PhD buddies, like classmates. Yeah. Um, but they they just got jobs there as professors. So. Wow, um, wow, wow! All right, man, time flies and goes on, and time is doing extremely well for you. When I we first met, you were a professor at Drexel University teaching finance, yeah. and now you're managing 1.5 billion Alpha Architects. You're busting it up tremendously with all sorts of great research and and do it yourself and helping average investors. Yeah, we've been uh, hooking and jabbing for over 10 years now and uh, <laughs> 10 year overnight successes, as they say. I still yeah. feel like I eat ramen noodles most of the time, but <laughs> uh, you know, now we got a billion and a half dollars to your point. It still doesn't even feel real uh, when, when you mention it, but it, it is a fact, fortunately. Yeah, all right, man, great. So let's go back to the beginning because I really think that what you did and what you set out to do was so unique in the world of finance where you set out from day one to use uh, research to make it transparent and to make it so the average investor could, could get returns that 
eluded them because Wall Street makes it complex and difficult and charges a whole bunch of fees. So l- let's yeah. stop back to your University of Chicago days. You're there, you're getting a PhD in what, 04 or so? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so I, started, I, I started there in 2002, um, and then, then I was there through 2002, 2004, doing like the core, which is where you just study 16 hours a day and get beat up by the, you know, the math champs. Um, and then I obviously left because I joined the service, uh, took a sabbatical. And then when I came back, I ended up finishing, uh, I got back in 08. So I went to the Marines, 2004, 2008, uh, came back and then finished off 2008 to 2010. So four years total, but uh, disjointed by a four-year sabbatical in the in the Marines. Obviously. How many how many uh, PhD finance people from University of Chicago stopped doing stopped their dissertation, stopped their PhD program, and joined the Marines? I think you were a translator, Arabic translator, uh, Marine intelligence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a uh, I, I did FID missions, foreign internal defense, where, where I'd been in, in bed with foreign militaries, one of which were were the Iraqis. So. Um, but also hung out Japanese, Filipino, you, you name it. Um, as far as a n- uh, number of people that have done that, I don't imagine the number's pretty low, uh, <laughs> possibly one, but you know, there's a lot of, a lot of weirdos out there. So yeah, I'm sure someone else is probably, probably back in the day, it happened all the time, you know, World War II time period, yeah, um, yeah. like in the old school days, but new school days, I, I, I think a yeah, I don't know of any, but I'm sure there's someone out there. So, so what happened? Nine eleven really impacted you a lot, and you're in, you're getting on with your life. Uh, you're a brilliant math student. You go to the top university in terms of finance, University of Chicago. For folks who don't know, Nobel Prize winner. I think you had a you had um, uh, was um, a Thaler yeah, was Fama. it? Yeah, Fama. Yeah, was he was it? my advisor. Yeah, yeah. And, and Richard uh, Thaler was also um, uh, wasn't he one of you? Yeah. Yeah. In the early in the early times of my curriculum paper, uh, yeah. So I, at the time they weren't that famous back, back then. But yeah, I had two uh, two two people that would go on to win Nobel Prize. Yeah. Were, were helping me out there. Um, when I entered back into the program, Thaler was, was he was too famous, and I don't know if he still interact with PhD students, but Professor Fama he he's hardcore. And uh, so he was in, he was on my dissertation committee. Wow. So, um, so you lo- so you went with the best smart guy. You go to University of Chicago, want to learn finance. You love. I remember the first time we spoke about 11 years ago, you were swapping papers, not swapping. You were sending me research papers, getting all excited about stuff with all sorts of crazy letters. I, yeah. West, I don't understand what this means. I don't even understand the abstract. So uh, yeah. it was really cool stuff. So you then decide that, hey, I want to take a break. I want to serve the nation. I want to serve my country. And what do you do? You just stop? You tell them you're taking a leave of absence? No. Well, so for me, I'd always want, I always wanted to do the service. And the problem is, like, originally I was going to do it after high school, but, but then I got into college, right? And then you're like, all right, well, I should probably go to college. Um, and, then, and then I went through college, and I was a Wharton undergrad. Um, and I immediately got into the Chicago PhD program, which usually doesn't happen. And, and, you know, you get these full ride scholarships where they basically pay you to go to school. And so I was like, well, I, I don't want to join the service now. Like, I've got to take advantage of this. And then, and then I went into the Chicago PhD program. And then after a few years there, I, I just started thinking, I was like, okay, I, I need to either, you know, do this or not do it. And, and I decided, hey, it's only going to get worse if I, if I graduate from the University of Chicago with a PhD 
the chances that I'm going to be able to say, okay, let's stop it all and join the service and do my time is going to be even harder. And, and so it was one of those things where I was just like, you know what, I just got to do this. Um, and you have like a natural break in those programs where the first two years it's, you're just doing the like normal studies and then you, you reach what they call ABD, which is all but dissertation. And at that point, you're kind of on your own free will. And so that's what I did. I got to the first two years and then passed what they call your composite exams. And then I just thought it was a good time where, you know, if I want to have no regrets situation, I just got to do it then. So, so that, that's why I had the weird, awkward timing of, <laughs> doing in the middle of a PhD. But, but you, you, you didn't get some. It, it, you didn't get some cushy jump. You were over in 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 uh, in, uh, in Iraq, man. It was 160 degrees in the shade, and you were were in yeah. full gear, interrogating. You were you were really right near the fighting, right near yeah, the tough I, stuff. Yeah, I wanted to. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I was in the Marines in act. Yeah, active duty in combat, like you know, getting IED'd and shot at and hanging out with the Iraqis all day. Wow. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to, I wanted to serve, you know, just like everyone else does. Um, it was a great experience, honestly, like a lot, lot. The interesting thing is uh, about the PhD program at Chicago, a lot of people don't know this, and I don't know if they specifically recruit, but, but as you're probably aware, like PhD programs are not really about your IQ. It's really about how much pain and anguish uh, and focus do you have to survive, uh, you know, staring at the wall, thinking about one subject for a long time. So they recruit a lot of actually Israeli dis, uh, uh, defense force folks out of there. So, so the funny thing is, I think most programs, if you said, oh, I'm going to join the service and go in the military, most of your classmates would be like, you're insane. What are you thinking? But in particular, at that, at that time, maybe it's just that time era, but like I would say half of my classmates were former Israeli uh, defense force soldiers. And then a few others were like Finnish snipers. Mm. And so when I told them I, I was joining the military, they're like, oh yeah, doesn't everyone do that here? Right, right, I'm right. like, nah, man, like, like in America, that's not like that. Like right. we're not all, we don't all join the service. And, and so they all thought it was, it was pretty normal and like what you should do. And, you know, which I thought was, you know, kind of unique because a lot of people wouldn't expect that. But when you're dealing with mostly internationals, I think I was one of two other Americans actually in the PhD program they just come at it from a different perspective, yeah. so it wasn't too surprising to them. Yeah, it's great uh, you're in that in that group of group of, of, of you know you're in that cohort that uh, made all the sense in the world to you. So are, you know, by the way, I, I, there was a lot of infantry officers, and they, they were actually giving me more advice about you know joining the military and getting prepped for the service than they were about you know doing regressions or, or <laughs> quant analysis stuff. Right, right. Um, so it's kind of interesting. So so I don't want to, I want to talk about the books first, uh, but before sure. I do that, I just want to jump over. And when you built Alpha Architect, you have uh, military people with you, right? You you took that, you know, yep. you, you brought those folks with you. Uh, how many people you have in your firm that are from the military? Yeah, so there's, uh, so my COO, um, Pat, he's a former Marine captain as well. Um, gentleman doug pugliese he's a former navy pilot and then actually one of our he's a he's an older guy he's old army uh officer he, he's one of our backers and funders uh so so we have a lot of service members basically wow. outstanding uh, outstanding man. yeah a lot more than than most finance firms i would say yeah uh, so, we, we used to be about 50 percent but we keep growing faster than uh, we can recruit uh you know veterans at the moment so i, I think we're probably down to 
30 or 40% veteran, but uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes as we move forward. You know, just as an aside, before we get into it, when you hire veterans, uh, it's, it's a different mindset of people you're hiring, right? These people, they're disciplined. They know what order is. They understand the chain of command. They understand responsibility. Uh, would you, yeah. you know, I just don't understand why more businesses don't hire as first, right off the top, um, uh, military yeah. veterans. Yeah, I, I think there's probably just a lot of communication issues with like translating like your skill sets and, and what you've done in the service to, you know, being in the private sector. And then I think a lot of times people are, are um, I, I guess, maybe, um, you know, worried or scared. Like, how do I talk to this person? Like, is he crazy? Did he used to kill babies or whatever? And, and that, that's nothing against like civilians. It's just it's actually against the veterans. Like they need to make civilians at ease and explain to them, I'm not crazy. I'm not a weirdo. Yes, my old job was kind of crazy. Uh, <laughs> my mind is probably screwed up, but I am a normal person. I do normal things just like you. And, and so I think a lot of times there's just a cultural gap there that, that creates challenges for folks. Um, but I, I, think, I think firms are getting a little bit better at it. There's a lot of groups out there in the charitable sector that help facilitate commu the communication gaps. So it, it's like anything. It's just you know, when you have bad communications and little cultural rifts, it, you know, sometimes things don't match up as good as they probably should, but, yeah. you know, we're getting there. We're working on it. Yeah. All right, man. You're doing great on that end. That's, that's really great. All right. So the first book, I remember you sent this to me around, when was this book in 2010 or 11 or 12? Quantitative Value. When did that book come out? Yeah, that, that one. Yeah, that was, that was 2012, I think. It officially okay. got published. 2012. So I think you sent it to me at the beginning of 12 or 11. I don't remember. You sent me a manuscript. The book is yeah. Quantitative Value, A Practitioner's Guide to Automating Intelligent Investment and Eliminating Behavioral Errors. So you definitely didn't have marketing come up with a title for that, man. That had to be something you came up yeah. with. That's, 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 that's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty terrible. Um, and I actually, and I can't even take credit for it. As you know, like when you publish books, like in the end, they'll take author input, but it's more like our way or the highway. Right. Um, I think what Wiley's goal there was, cause at the time I was a professor and I think they make the most margin on, you know, selling books into universities. So I think they wanted to sell it and they did, they sold it as a textbook. So it wasn't going to be like, right, right, you know, right. awesome stories and adventures in value investing <laughs> right. land. It was going to be something geeky and boring that uh, presumably they'd get professors and students to buy. Right. So that's why they called it the mouthful. All right. Title. That's cool. That's cool. Uh, Sold a lot. Did well. Yeah. Okay. So here's the thing. You send this to me, I think 2000, as soon as it get manuscript. And I remember reading it through, I think I read it in one, I think I stopped what I was doing that day in my office and just read it through the next three, four hours. And what I remember just jumped at me was something that many people don't speak about in investing, and that's the behavioral biases, how you are programmed to screw up, and how you, yes. with quantitative, the quantitative part is the systematic approach that you, we're gonna talk about in a second, but you you and your uh, co-author, was, it was Toby Carlisle, right? Yeah, Tobias Carlisle, yep. right? Yeah, so, yeah Toby. Yeah. So you guys came up with an approach, but if, even if you don't look at the other stuff, let's put a second half of your book you're gonna look at. The behavioral yeah. biases, you want to talk about that for just a minute, because people just miss that totally, is, first of all, how'd you come about the behavioral bias stuff, and why'd you spend so much time talking about it? Well, unfortunately, I, 
uh, used to be a stock picker, uh, hardcore, like Ben Graham, Warren Buffett style. Like I used to trade stocks in the PhD lab at University of Chicago there. And my original goal was to be like Warren Buffett type. Um, and then I quickly realized through a lot of painful experiences that, you know, I would like to be like them, but I'm also human. And I have all these irrational problems and emotional decision-making issues. And, and so that was one thing going on. And then also at the time at University of Chicago, when I first started there, there was a gentleman there named uh, Nick Barberas, who now is a very famous professor at uh, Yale. He was actually at Chicago at the time. And obviously Dick Thaler, where they were at the, at the forefront of these ideas of behavioral <clears throat> finance and trying to emphasize to the efficient market team, hey, you know, people are kind of crazy and they do all this weird stuff and it does have effects on market prices. And just because you know about it doesn't mean you're immune to it. And, and so through that whole experience, I just got really interested in, because I, you know, as an individual, you know, investor myself, I, I, everything they kept mentioning in the textbook, I was like, wait a second, that's my problem. Like I'm overconfident. I anchor on things. Yeah, Wes, 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 let me interrupt you a second, man. Yeah. Just for those who are listening and don't have a background or PhD background like you do is yeah. explain for a second what a bias is, a behavioral bias. Sure. Give me one example, how it screws you yeah. up. And even if you know about it, it's still fighting you when you try to make money. Yep. So, um, so, so one of the, the kind of like the high level concepts is they do all these studies on people like us and, and you can present people with the same data, but you can do weird things to them and they'll come up with different decisions. So a rational decision would be, Hey, there's a, you know, hamburger over here from McDonald's and you're hungry. And there's a you know piece of broccoli over here, and you're also hungry. Now your rational brain should think, okay, McDonald's hamburger, it's going to give me a heart attack. It's you know I'm going to have to run 20 miles to burn it off, or I should go eat my broccoli. Um, in theory, the rational brain, if you're thinking sensibly about things, you say, okay, I'm not going to eat the McDonald's hamburger. I'm going to go eat the broccoli and like the lean steak or something like this, right? But it's, that's how you're supposed to think. But of course, your behavioral biases are kind of your innate tendencies or things that kind of happen at a subconscious level where you smell that McDonald's hamburger you, and, you know, it starts like making you salivate and you're like, you know what, that broccoli, I understand intellectually that's the right decision that I should be doing rationally, but damn, that hamburger smells good and you just jump on it and eat it, Right. And so that's just a basic idea of like bias. And sometimes we, we, we know we should do something because our rational brain says that's the right thing to do, but our irrational brain or what Kahneman calls like a system one brain, it's kind of the brain that was developed when, you know, when you're a monkey or a lizard brain, um, you're going to, you're going to do things that sometimes aren't optimal. Right. And, and so humans, just like any other animal out there, like sometimes we do things that, that are not rational. And the problem is the more you amp up stress, the more you amp up, like you're tired, you didn't have coffee, you just get even worse. That, that hamburger, your ability to go eat the broccoli versus eat that hamburger under stress, it's just even more difficult to make the right decision. Right. So like, and like, like and this happens in, yeah, like yeah. for example, late night TV, when they have those infomercials at two in the morning. They know exactly. that your, your uh, guard is, is really down. You're more 
relaxed and you'll buy stupid things at two in the morning yes. that when you wake up at seven in the morning, you say, what the hell did I do? Yep. You got it. And we all know this, like, this is not something that's new to people. Like we've all made bad decisions and you usually make the worst decisions when you're under stress, you're drinking, you're tired, you haven't had your coffee, whatever it is. Right. And so, so the problem with investing, like, just like if you're in like a combat situation or really anything that's just stressful is, is you, you don't want to be going into those situations without like a highly rigid systematic plan, because if you do, the minute there's any amount of stress, the likelihood that you're going to make a bad decision just keeps ratcheting up and up and up, especially as you see your stock going down, you know, your life savings is blowing up. And, and so I, I kind of learned the hard way, I guess, <laughs> through my own learned experience of being a stock picker. And then at simultaneously getting lucky to, to have professors that were on kind of the forefront of this whole behavioral finance stuff. And then also, not only that, going through the military, where, where a lot of times in the military, they have standard operating procedures because, again, they don't want you to think too much because they know if you're in like a stressful scenario, if you didn't have a good training or didn't have systems in place, you're always going to do the stupid thing. Um, so it just it seemed logical after a lot of hard experience and, and problems in my own decision making that if I was going to do investing, I need to get systems up front in place that, that I can build while, while I'm thinking rationally and sensibly and then just follow those systems. Right. So, <laughs> so I didn't want my so monkey what, brain. Right. So what you did is you created a systematic approach that made sure that your your caveman brain didn't go yes. for that McDonald's hamburger, but leveled the playing field and said, okay, put all that aside, the fact that I'm hungry, the fact that it smells good and looks beautiful, put all aside, rationally, what's the best, what's the next yes. move I should make? Yes, exactly. What does evidence suggest? What makes sense from a high level financial economics perspective? What was I doing in my head anyways as a stock picker but instead of repeating that in my head every time, why don't we just have a system do that? Right. And that was really right. the ethos of quantitative value is, is let's do value investing, but leverage computers and systems to make sure that that process is right. the same every single time, regardless of how stressful I am or right. regardless of how, how much the marketplace says, well, you know, value investing is for old idiots that don't know what they're doing because cash doesn't matter anymore. You know, it's all about revenue or <laughs> whatever people say nowadays. Um, you know, it's really hard to defend against these stories because our human brain is, is amiable to those stories. It, but, it, but the, the bottom line is we got to focus on the evidence. we got to focus on the systems and just deploy things that, that make sense systematically. Right. Um, right. And so, just, so, yeah, so Buffett's almost be religious about it. So Buffett said the most important thing for any investor is to have the proper temperament to know how to deal yes. when stocks are falling, not to panic, in fact, do the exact opposite and buy, and when everyone's euphoric to do the exact opposite and look to sell. So he yeah. says it as second nature, but there's only one Buffett, and all the wannabes exactly. who think that they're gonna go into a firefight and act like you know a, a, a superhero, like Captain Marvel, you're not gonna do that. Your, your, your primitive brain is gonna say, gunfire, the market's losing. Yes. I'm freaking out. I'm diving into a foxhole. So, yep, exactly. 
it, it like well buffett even says it like you know investing is simple but not easy right and and what people don't recognize is like him and, and also like charlie munger like munger is basically a phd in psychologist in my opinion even though he's not technically one because when you read those guys reports which i know you've probably read and memorized every single <laughs> one of them it's very clear that their superpower has nothing really to do with their investing iq and prowess it has to do with their discipline and ability to not worry and, and be affected by what most people get affected by. It's amazing that that is their superpower. Right. They are computers in a human body where, where I can't do that. You can't do that. 99.9% of the population does not have that superpower because they're a human being. Like, and there, there's a, there's a non-zero probability that Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett might be robots in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, the fact that they're over 90 and still like doing those uh, annual meetings, and they know they're getting, you know, they get, they get, that might be the case. They're getting better. They're getting better. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, it's like, you know, it's like a 40 year old right handed pitcher who's having a career year. You shouldn't have that. <laughs> you know, you should be sliding yeah. down. And, and these guys just they get might stronger. Be cyborgs. Yeah, got to be, got to be, got to be cyborgs, got to be. And, um, and, and, but know, most of us aren't cyborgs, so we need to kind of lean on systems. Yeah, it's, it's like, a, it's, on it. it's like casinos are built by not, you know, every people who think they're card counters, <laughs> you know, everyone walks yeah. in there and I could be, I could beat the house, but a small yeah. fraction uh, can do that. The rest think they can do that. So you saw, yep. see that what I liked about when I read your book the first time out, as I said, very few books have ever dealt with both aspects, with isolating the problem, identifying the problem rather, identifying the problem, and then creating an approach that basically took every single bias, put it aside, so you had, you had no other choice but to act rationally. Is that more or less what you got there? Yeah, that's right. Have a system that keeps you in the guardrails and makes you make the right decision approximately every time, as opposed to trying to be perfect and have influence from bias every time, which is uh, at least I think it's suboptimal unless you're Warren Buffett. Right. So what, what bias would you say is most most people get sucked into when you've seen investors and you've um, dealt with them for a long while now? The, yeah, the biggest one is overconfidence. Because naturally, like you ask people like, hey, are you a better driver than average? Are you better looking than average? You know, 90% of people always think you're better than average. Right. But guess what? When we sample the population, <laughs> on average, you can't be better than average, right? And, and the problem with it is, and, and you see it a lot in the marketplace right now, because I deal with 25-year-olds that tell me how great they are investing every single day because they've made 10,000%, <laughs> is, is when you put a little bit of time and effort into something, even though there's a lot of noise associated with that decision, i.e. luck, but it works, your brain codifies that obviously as skill. And then if something doesn't work, your brain codifies that all the time as bad luck. It's called self-attribution bias. So if over time in all your decisions, anything that works, you codify as, oh, God, I'm a genius. Anything that doesn't work, you blame it on some circumstance, like, oh, the Fed did it or you know, the Democrats did it or the Republicans did it, whatever it is, you know, we've all made these excuses. Systematically over time, you're going to start believing in your own bullshit too much, right? And that's what, it's it's almost just like a slow motion train wreck. And, and I, like, I can give you an example, even down here, these are not even young people. I, like, I live in Puerto Rico now, and there's a huge, like, crypto community, and there's nothing against crypto. I think it's interesting, all that good stuff. 
but I, I was asking them and they asked me what I did. And I was like, oh, I'm in the ETF business. They're like, what's that? Uh, I was like, we ever heard of Vanguard? They're like, no, nah, what's Vanguard? And I was like, whoa, like, holy cow. And like, is, is that like EFXs? And I was like, what's EFX? Mm. It's like some crypto index. And that's like, so, like, so what do you guys do? Do you just invest in crypto? They're like, yeah, you just, we have diversified portfolios of like different crypto coins. I'm like, you have all your money in crypto coins? They're like, yeah, wh why wouldn't you? And we just can diversify a bunch of, amongst a bunch of them. And it was just, I was like, my mind was exploding with, with, with just thoughts like, oh my God. It, but then it kind of made sense through the lens of behavior because I thought, oh, these folks probably did this for the last five, six, seven years. They've, they've knocked it out of the park. Now they just, they're like crypto. Well, obviously you'd invest in crypto because that's the best deal. And if you find the new ones, they always work. You get overconfident in it and your, your brain and your focus just, you no longer can even see the scope of what's even out there. Um, and, and, you know, you'd probably have a million observations on this too, but overconfidence is by far and away the most uh, dangerous thing that, that I think humans naturally engage in, especially guys that they're even worse. It, it seems than girls, like women, at least like, you know, they'll go talk to people to get like outside input and that they're a little bit more rational. That's also what like the literature suggests. But guys, is, is, you know, we're like natural cavemen, like, oh, I'm stronger than you. And, and a little bit of success can sometimes be, you know, the worst thing that ever happened to you. Because, yeah, you just, you actually think you know what you're doing. You know what, mate, what, what I found made me a better investor over the years, and I started on the floor, your futures, mm -hmm. your futures changed in 1983, is almost from the get-go, I was told to keep a book of mistakes. I didn't know what that was, you know. It. And now mm -hmm. it's about, I have like six or seven notepads of these books. Uh, so I tell my subscribers to my newsletter, you know, someone says, well, I don't want a, I don't want a financial editor who makes mistakes. I go, you definitely want someone who makes mistakes because I identify what they were. And hopefully if oh. I, I won't repeat them and hopefully in the future, the mistakes become smaller. But uh, I've, yeah. I've, when I ask other uh, friends of mine who manage hedge funds and investors and traders, what you have a book of mistakes, they look at me like I'm crazy. You know, it's like the gam you know, a gambler who only remembers the winners. And I find so exactly. much with the losers, the mistakes where I just just drop the ball. And you know, you just find them and yep. shame on you if you do it again. But uh, you're, you're, I'm totally uh, on there with you, the overconfidence, because when you do make it, it's all you. And when you lose it, man, it was never me. It was COVID, it was something else. It was an uh, interest rate yep. rise or something. So I guess as yeah. humans, that's the way we, 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 we naturally evolved. Uh, if we weren't overly confident, we'd still be in caves. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and you, you see it in everything. Like it's also ties back to ego. Um, like a lot of people don't have natural humility because I think by nature, you want to have an ego to like pump yourself up. So you have the confidence to go do stuff, but, but you need to really kind of harness that ego back. And, you know, for me, I personally like to do like extreme exercise events. Because, you know, when you beat yourself down so hard, you're just happy to have water. I'm happy to have a piece of bread. And, and it's just, you, you go back to like ground zero again. And I'm just like humbled. I'm like, man, I would just hope and pray to God I could have like a drip of water, like, you know, let alone the Ferrari or something. And it, it, if people don't rebase themselves all the time, it, it's, you, you just, you really need to eat humble pie. Right. And in your life, somehow you always got to like, do something to make you eat humble pie because it, it is so easy to just pump that ego up, get that overconfidence.
and then actually think you're important in the world. And, and the reality is we're like, none of us are really that important. If you, if you step back and think about it, there's, I think there's 8 billion humans out there. So, so just from a rational perspective, the odds that you're that one in 8 billion, yeah. that's so special yeah. is, is probably pretty low. Um, but, but that's not an easy thing for most people to, you know, contemplate, unfortunately. Yeah. But I just, so, want, I want to clarify one thing and just to, it, you know, people listening, I just want you to realize that Wes is an experienced professional investor, tons of knowledge, off the charts in IQ, and it, it's it's not being pessimistic and it's not being confident in yourself or being positive. It basically is being even keeled to realize I can make mistakes. Here's what I need to look out for, and I'm not invincible. Yeah. And if you do happen to make money, it wasn't you. It was the approach that worked. And when you do lose yeah. money, it was all you because I should not have been there. Yeah, you got it. It's, it's all about the process. It's not about the outcome because outcomes, as you mentioned, they're so noisy. And you, you've probably read like Annie Duke has a, a great book. Um, I think it's called Thinking in Bets. Yeah, yeah. Where, where it's, it's just so important to think about that. Like, what is your process? Because that's something you can learn about. You can improve. You did this good. You did this bad. Okay, fine. We'll incorporate it in the process. But if you look at outcomes because of the noise, it's, it's just, it's a terrible way to think about the world. And that's why the SEC and the regulators make you say past performance is not no indication of future results because past performance is not indication of future results. Your process is, and, and, but that just confuses the heck out of a lot of folks. Um, and it's not intuitive, but, but it's really important to think what is the process an outcome matters, but only to the extent that it's tied to a process, process that right. can be learned, developed, and improved. I think the uh, worst thing that could happen to any investor or any gambler is to have a terrible process and have a very positive outcome. And it usually happens oh, yeah. on your first trade or your first, uh, your first, your first bet. You, yep. The gods of investing or betting let you win that first one. So now you think you have a process that produces an outstanding outcome. And you spend the rest yes. of your money and your life trying to replicate that. And it's never so because the process sucked. Yeah. No, I mean, that happened to me. Like, I'll still remember, like, I bought Swisher Sweet uh, Cigar, like, back in, like, I don't even remember, 98 or something. Three months later, it was a classic Buffett stock, right? Really cheap, really high quality. I was like, oh, everyone uses it. They're addicted to it. I was smoking them in college, you know, like the ghetto cheap cigars there. And it got bought out for, like, a 50% premium. And that was my that was my first real pick, and I was like, God, this is so easy, and, and and so I had that same problem, but I got also got lucky in the sense that I had a huge win. Thought I was a genius right in the early two thousands when value was a great trade, but then I, I also got humble pie really hard um, in two thousand eight when I didn't have a ton of money to lose because it was in the service for four years. Thank God, and, the, and the, so I had the the benefit of a really big winner, thinking I was awesome. And then I also had the luxury in some sense of being in the service. So I didn't, didn't make a lot of money because when I got out, I lost a shitload of money and I was like able to rethink it and rebuild from, from a low base. Um, and I just, I feel like I got lucky because if yeah. I kept winning, it's, it's, all about, I'd be, it's, it's all about timing. Yeah. And, you know, if you started at yes. the wrong time, uh, you know, life would have been a whole bunch, a whole lot. If you had a ton of money in 08 without those experiences, yeah. you would have lost it all. And you'd probably, I don't know. Yeah. Be selling paper. No, no, exactly. <laughs> you know? uh, yeah, right. and, and you're right. Timing is everything. 
I mean, hell, we're born today versus a hundred years ago. Yeah. You can only imagine like what the difference. Would but be. you want to? I want to tell you something, man. There's something that I think about and I use often, and it's something you told my son Richie when we met with you 10, 11 years ago, from the from your Marine days. You said, "Grow where you're planted." And I said, yeah. what the hell does that mean? He goes, wherever you are, just make the best of what you got and deal with it. And I've thought about yeah. that so many times, just grow where you're planted. And people walk around complaining and how life screwed me and this. Year. Hey, dude, grow where you're planted. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, the, I think it's a great thing. Like the Marine Corps obviously has like tons of life lessons because it is life amplified. And yeah, it, I mean, the same thing there, like you just never know, like the, they call it getting the green weenie, like the Marine Corps, you may say, I want to live here, I want to do this job. And they may say, no, you're leave, living in the opposite place, you're doing the opposite job, get after it. And, and so the reality is, in the end, you've got to take, um, you have to take responsibility for your own actions and just make stuff happen and grow where you're planted. Because if you're just going to whine and complain about everything, I mean, that's fine. You have, you know, you're free to do that, but you're never going to actually like get any better or improve. And you're just going to be mad and pissed off. Right, the time. right, right. And, and I just don't know why right. people want to live like that yeah, personally, yeah. but uh, obviously a lot of people do. Yeah. Um, no one said, no one said life, no one said life's supposed to be fair. You know, it's not supposed to be a fair yeah. game. It is what it is and just deal with that. So, okay. So you're right. Yeah. Quantitative uh, investing. Uh, value yeah. investing, where you work out a fund. I want to even talk about what the form is because you yeah. can definitely buy the book. And folks, I just want to tell you yeah. something about what Wes writes. When Wes writes anything, he deals with a lot of research, totally transparent. So, in fact, you don't have to read them. All the footnotes to all the research papers, it's all evidence based. And it's nothing magical. It's nothing like on a Wednesday under a full moon in the month of July, <laughs> buy pork bellies, nothing like that. It's an approach that makes sense by companies that are trading at a certain quantitative valuation and have a certain financial aspect to them and buy a whole boatload of them and do it from there. That's really, I think, what was great about that first book and why I was so excited when you, when you sent it to me. I said, wow, finally someone took both ends and put them together. The, the approach with why you screw up. And now if I could just, you know, Charlie Munger said, just let me know where I'm going to die and this is where I won't go there. If I could just avoid these biases, I'm going to be okay. And that's why I did the mistake book from the beginning. I, I said, you know, I'm going to just overlook them. And these, this, is, yeah. this is tuition. I just paid tuition yeah. with my loss. How could I not learn something from that? And if I don't, I'm, a, nope. I'm, a, I'm an idiot because I'm just going to keep making that same mistake again. So that's I, I definitely that book. It's not for everybody, but if you're really serious about making money and looking at it, and it's not difficult, and because I'll tell you why at the end. Keep listening, and I'll tell you how Wes put this all together in exchange traded funds. Second book that comes out, I think it was Do It Yourself, right? Do yep. It Yourself. Yeah, Do DIY it, Financial Advisor. Two Financial Advisors. Okay, now you come out with this book, and you're basically telling the investing public what? Sum it up for me in a sentence. So, so basically just telling the investment public is we all got a family office and you, you want to avoid fees and taxes and complexity. And it's not that hard in the end. Like you can DIY or do it yourself when it comes to financial advisory. Um, and, and so we just wanted to, and that's not to say that everyone should DIY it because of the behavioral bias problems we're talking about. But I just wanted to write almost like a self-help book where to the extent someone wanted to DIY it, 
and they wanted the frameworks and the tools and the understanding to be successful in that endeavor, Elisa was kind of a cookbook for them to, to go with. Um, in the end, though, like we have a lot of people that have read that book, but they read that book and they're like, actually, all the biases, all the things you're talking about here that I need to overcome in order to DIY it, I don't really want to DIY it. I, I still got to go hire someone because I'm so rational. I know that I'm going to be irrational, so I'm going to go hire someone. Like those, those are the people that are like the ultra rationals, where, where they they actually are so cognizant of their own fragility that they know they need to hire someone. And, and those people are never going to have a problem. Um, it, it's really the the people on the other ends. They they don't think they have a problem, or or you know, or everything in between. But that's really what that book is about. Just yeah. helping people know and have the confidence to be able to do this stuff themselves and avoid paying extra fees they probably don't need. Right. And another thing I loved about that when you came out with that book, and I think you sent me the manuscript on that, or maybe I bought it, I don't remember exactly, because we have the same publisher, Wiley. In fact, did I introduce yep. you to Wiley? Uh, you, you might have. Oh, um, okay, good. I don't, know, uh, I don't remember how you got involved with Wiley, because I remember what the odds were. Maybe I did. All yeah. right, no problem. Super. Yeah, so, yeah. Bill Bill Falloon is is my guy. If you yeah. knew him, maybe I can't even remember. If it's I know, so a long time ago. Yeah. All right, maybe that's how I got a free book from you. Okay, so yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you definitely had a lot of great comments <laughs> and amazing uh, insights on that manuscript. So, I mean, regardless, even if you didn't introduce me, like that book's a heck of a lot better through your, you know, through your comments and everything. Man, for sure, appreciate that. I, I I can't take any credit. You you put it down on paper. I just gave you. I gave you my one year of Brooklyn College and my other 30 years of <laughs> hardcore experience. I couldn't give you any PhD stuff. So I looked at it and I said, this doesn't make any sense. This is perfect. So yeah. <laughs> with the DIY book, what I really liked about mm -hmm. that is you have in there, which, uh, which is worth, once again, you know, you, you put one thing in that makes the worth, the, you don't have to read the rest of it. Just read these one or two chapters on it, which, in, which really set a light bulb off in my head. How a checklist, a systematic approach beats the experts and you cite a meta study of all these things. Yeah. Go please just share with us the study yeah. that was done with wine selection of the great yeah. wine tasting of grading them 96, 98, whatever it might be and how wine tasters have such a perfect palate and these experts know everything. Yeah, so, so, so the long story short is you could take a, a very simple algorithm, and I don't remember the exact details offhand, but it's going to look at like the age of the grapes, where the grapes are, are made, and a few other things. And they're going to be better than all the best sommeliers in the entire world um, by a long shot, right? And, and that's just one study of hundreds of studies where, where psychologists have been doing this for a long time. It's like the model versus expert debate. And, and kind of the overall summary of, of, of this is not just in wine tasting, but in everything you can ever imagine. In general, you can usually build simple models that achieve the same outcome or better outcomes. I think it's 90 to 95% of the time. It's just the problem is experts are so seductive, right? Because they've got, they're like me, they got like PhDs, they got pedigrees from the best schools. So if I wanted to do the opposite role, and be less transparent, more opaque, and, and kind of sell the snake oil, I could easily do that with, with my background. And, and a lot of people would believe me. They'd be like, oh yeah, this guy has to know what he's talking about because look how, you know, how many degrees he's got and all this stuff he's done, he must be amazing. Um, 
but the reality is, unfortunately, I'm just I'm too uh, transparent. Not only transparent, to say, hey, you, you, you have too much integrity. That's really what it comes out to be. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I just I know I'm full of shit, just like mm -hmm. everyone else, because I put my pants on every day, like like everyone else does, and so I don't want to portray just because I have a lot of uh, you know background and experience that I somehow know something better than everyone else does. I just happen to be more cognizant of it and more aware. Um, I'm just trying to present tools to folks, but but you could see how the seduction of the expert, especially if the expert scares you, right? Because you're going into a field like finance or insurance or home buying, really anything where, where you don't know anything about it. And there's a big decision on the line, like, God, I'm gonna have to spend all this money or you know, I'm gonna have to get this lawyer. And if I don't do the right lawyer, I'll, I'll get screwed. And so when that expert says, listen, if you don't hire me, you could die. You could go bankrupt. Like, it's going to be ugly. It, all you got to do is just pay me a little fee and we'll get it taken care of. And most people, if they don't have like their cousin or their brothers, like a PhD in XYZ field, they're going to be like, geez, you know, I should probably hire that expert. And so you can see how like, like experts can influence people that are uninformed to hire them because it, it's scary to not have an expert with you on a lot of these journeys. You need a Sherpa. Right, um, right. And, you know, unfortunately, like a lot of times the marketplace and in different industries exploit this to, to take advantage of a lot of people right, where, right. where that's why there's a lot of fees for a lot of things that really just don't require that much knowledge. You just right. need a, a few tools to be successful. And that's why um, Buffett says that, you know, Wall Street's the only place where people with... Uh, limousines go down to give their money to people who take the subway <laughs> you know yeah, it's yeah. just you know you give it to a 25 year old broker or advisor who basically shows you a nice deck and here's a 50 year old guy that made a million dollars grinding it out and he's giving his oh. money to someone that has no idea just because it's wall street builds up all this complexity and it reminds me of the wizard of yeah. ours standing behind the curtain there you know and just i'm uh, the great powerful laws and we found that time and time again, the simple S&P index fund charging three basis points knocks the hell out yeah. of 95% of all managers. No, that, that's right. And we also learned time and time again that, like, to your point, like, the emperor doesn't have any clothes, like, 2008. Like, what are these guys doing? Well, it's called leverage, right? <laughs> or it's called, like, like, and you see that everyone I, everyone I know who's really, really rich um, and is still rich, they're now diversified. Because they, they at some point in their lives realize like, oh, wow, I actually got really lucky. Like maybe I had a good call, but in the end, the reason I'm a billionaire is because I got lucky. And, and it, you're only a billionaire if, if you realize that. Because if you're a billionaire and you haven't realized that, eventually you're going to put 60, 70% of your money all in on another bet. And, and it's going to come the, the crashing realization that, wait a second, you were actually a lucky individual and now you'll be broke. So, so most really wealthy people, they're, they're still wealthy for a reason. They eventually realize it was all luck, most of it. And, and now they're like diversified, low cost, low complexity, right, keep taxes, right. like all the boring stuff that, you know, Vanguard and a lot of folks been talking about their whole life or Buffett does, you know, um, it's just hard to get to that realization. Yeah, you know, all the years I manage money. And then starting a newsletter and writing, um, writing really simple stuff. You know, what do we do? We buy great businesses run by excellent CEOs uh, with yep. industry tailwinds, and we buy them at bargain prices. What else do you do? I go, that's all you need to do. You know, it doesn't require any more 
uh, sophistication than that. And they go, well, I understand this. It has to, no, it doesn't have to be harder than that. And it, it yep. seems to me that, uh, you know, uh, it, the, the more complex you make something, the more you're playing on people's fears that A, they can't do it, B, that even if they try to do it, they're going to be met with utter failure, and C, yes. don't even try. Don't even try. I think it's the worst part yeah. of it. Don't even try. And what I think you did is you brought out that you showed, and I think, which is so great, man, is you built up the reader's confidence to say, wait a second, these experts are no smarter than me. Here are the actual numbers. They underperformed yeah. a simple checklist. They underperformed a yeah, simple yeah. algorithm. So yeah. that gives, that's a, lot, that's a big confidence builder. Yeah, yeah, you, you really, I mean, people need to obviously invest time in their own education. And our, and our firm mission is empower investors to education. We're, we're, you, we need to bring the horse to water. And eventually you got to drink the water. Uh, and you also got to be willing to walk up to it. And, and it is the case, and we have noticed this in our own history at this point, where, where you know, when you're young and, and stupid and you start a, like an impact mission business, you're like, oh, I'll just, we'll put out all this great content, be super transparent, like really try to help people learn, understand, write books. Everyone's going to want to do this. And, and it still turns out to be the case that there's still humans like to be humans and they'll go read all this material. And then they'll come back to us and say like, Wes, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Why don't you make it 50 times more complex as if I haven't already known and been down this rodeo a hundred times like, and I always have to emphasize to people, like, the reason it's simple is because I've been thinking about this for, like, a lot longer than you have. Right. Like, do you not think I have not tried all the whiz-bang mousetraps and crap that people talk about and add? Like, obviously, I've been doing this for, like, three decades now. Like, it's simple for a reason because it works better. Like, I'm not trying to sell you anything here. Like, you got to understand that, like, it's simple and transparent because it works better. That's why I put my own money in these things, right? If I thought complexity was useful and, and I got my own skin in the game, well, I would have done that. Right. It, but it's all the time. Like people are so enamored with like complexity and making it fancier and like more hard and more complicated. And I just, well, actually I do know why. Cause I, actually I'm, I wrote a blog here. It's coming out tomorrow. There's a, there's an article in nature that actually goes to this very thing where what they do is, is they present people with like a Lego block and, and they say, Hey, you have two things. You can, you can either add blocks to solve the problems or you can take blocks away. And of course, all, all the humans need to do is remove one little block and the problem solved. But guess what? 90% plus of people in these studies, they add three or four blocks to like, because people just want to add to solve problems like people are very bad at like taking away things to solve a problem and, and unfortunately as you're as you know in investing in particular simple is usually better than more complex so our innate nature to always want to add to make things better is is the worst in an investing context where usually simple <laughs> makes it better because it usually keeps the cost down keeps the trade yeah, down yeah. keeps Taxes. Hey, look, also, with, you know, with variables, right? The more variables you have, the more complex it is, the more it's yep. prone to error. And, uh, you know, all you really need to do is two or three variables about a business, many times one or two, yeah. uh, to make a decision. And I know yeah. well, you've done all these studies. The more with handicappers, they did with horse handicappers, uh, they said, okay, how many pieces of information? And they figured the more information they had, the more accurate and the more confident their picks would be. 
And in fact, the yes. more information they had, the more confident they were, and their win rate continued to slide down. Yeah. So they kept crazy. winning less. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's winning by yeah. subtracting. And people just yeah. don't get it. And when I, you know, by the way, when I write my, um, my newsletter, my monthly newsletter, we always isolate one company. And I always point to the one or two drivers of that business that if I'm on a desert island, I'd want to know X. That's all you really need to know yeah. about a business. You don't need to know about the minutia of this or that. What drives it? How exactly. did they make their money? And if that screws yeah. up, what happens then? And people get so lost in the weeds. You know, by the way, I have one yeah. analyst, I'm not going to mention who he is, but I gave him a, a timer because he used to get lost mm -hmm. in the weeds for hours looking up footnotes. So I gave him a timer and I said, okay, when I ask you something, hit the timer, you have 20 minutes. You can't find it in 20 minutes, you're never finding it. Move doesn't on. Count. It, yeah. it doesn't matter. It <laughs> doesn't matter. All right, let me, let me go because oh. I want to finish up to the here because I want to get to the end of this in terms of where yeah. you took all of this and you put it together in a basic one-stop shop. And that's when you created uh, with your partner, Alpha, partners, Alpha Architects. What was wow. the goal of creating Alpha Architects and what do you do? Yeah, so, so, so we have an impact mission that is started even from the very first day, which is empower investors through education. So that's what we do as like a firm. Like that's why we exist, what we're trying to do to the marketplace. Um, what, but we obviously have to, we're a for-profit business. And so what we do is we, we decided to embed all these systems and these books and these strategies that we have in our ETF products because they're, you can manage taxes there. And a lot of times people, they'll read the books and we're more than happy to help people facilitate if they want to do it DIY. But as you know, like a lot of times people just, they don't want to DIY. As long as it's affordable, they understand the process, what they're getting into, they would be willing to pay to somebody to do that on their behalf. You know, so, by the way, I'd like to, I, I, I like to think of that as like yeah. the I Ikea model. Uh, you know, you, you yep. could buy something from Ikea and there's no, there's no words in how to put it together. It's just three or four pictures. But there's a whole subculture of people out there who charge to put Ikea models and furniture and whatever together. Yeah. You know, even though it's DIY, yep. I don't want to do it. Yeah. And as long as you don't charge like, like too much for your services, it's affordably priced and all these. It's a good things. deal. It's a good you deal. Know, yeah. Some people want to pay for your time and effort and you doing the work for them. Right. right. There's a reason people buy stuff at Amazon. Um, so, so what we try to do in general in the marketplace is, is do every, we try to become like the vanguard of really weird boutique active strategies that aren't really scalable and they're really hard to access at affordable cost. And, and Vanguard's not going to compete against us, right? Because the reality of the marketplace these days is if you're in big, scalable, I can put $100 billion into this thing, um, guess what? Vanguard's already doing it because they have hundreds of billions of dollars. Right. And, but guess what else? And, and I guess this is a good or a bad thing, but they can't do strategies that can only take like maybe a billion dollars or $2 billion because that, they don't even wake up for that much, Right. And so there's always going to be opportunities for boutiques to do unique, weird stuff at the margins. And if we can deliver these affordably, efficiently, you know, low fee, low taxes, um, and you find a segmented, you know, segmented buyer, you know, it, it could be valuable. Right. Just like there's Amazon out there and then there's Shopify, right? Shopify hosts thousands of different stores that are all boutiques that are all successful because, you know, marketplace kind of has something for everyone and the 800 pound gorillas can't possibly do everything 
because they are 800 pound gorillas and they can't really do the boutique weird stuff, um, which is where we tend to focus. Right. Um, so you created ETFs. So. They're about a handful, right? You have about four or five of them. That's it. Yep. Oh. Yeah. 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 And, we, we do evergreen ideas. We're not a, we're not a product shop. Um, we have the same ETFs out there that do value. They do momentum. And then one that blends them. Um, I put my capital in our own products and that's just what we do. And you have also, um, you also have international exposure as well with the same process you have. Yep. Yeah. So you have, yeah. so you have all that, that. That's right. We, we, um, yeah, we have U S versions and U S versions. I, I personally am, am into global diversification, but as you probably know, like a lot of people have home bias where, where they're like, no, nope, I don't want to own international. I want to own hundred percent U S and that's fine. That's not what I personally do or recommend, but some people are like that. And that, and that's, so that's why we have the, the strategies kind of bifurcated into U.S. international uh, right. to be able to facilitate that. Right, and anyone could buy you go to your Alpha Architect or go online and and check out. Uh, by the way, your website is a world of information, just all free stuff, uh, videos. You have yep. a whole bunch of PDFs. You are totally transparent in what you do and why it works and what to what the yep. what your goal is and all. So you've done yep. and you've charged. You know, it's 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 something where it's it's not. If you have money, it's not an onerous amount of money that you're going to be paying in fees. You're, you're doing an enormous amount of work. You're trying to beat the benchmarks, beat the indices, bringing that extra yeah. alpha and doing it in a cost-efficient way, right? So uh, it's, it's a happy day. Yeah, and we're, we have fun too. So, it, you know, I'm not here to sell any of our investment products. Like we always tell folks, um, you know, most products in the marketplace are sold, not bought. Like we don't even want that. Like our products need to be bought, not sold. So I'm not even going to mention the ticker. Uh, I just say, hey, go to our website and you know engage in the literature, engage in the process, engage in your own education, and then we just happen to offer products and strategies that mm -hmm. I feel that someone who engaged in that kind of education maybe find interesting. But it's definitely not for everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like I said, our main mission is empower through education. So even if you don't like any of our stuff, that's totally cool. Um, at least you maybe can learn something and become a better investor. And that, that's really what our impact mission is. Yeah, uh, I'm a millennial, right? So I got to have an impact mission. Yeah. yeah. We, we're, we're pie in the sky thinkers. Yeah. Uh, yep, yep. That's just what we do. So that's like our impact is yeah. trying to help people out. Wes, I'm telling you, man, it's just so, it's, it's, it, I'm really just so happy for you to see where you, you started this idea. I was speaking to you in the beginning of it when you were still working with a family office and you came up with those things. You took everything, you, you put this, put it in books, you wrote about it, you researched it, then you did something most academics never do is you actually went out and did it and continued success, man. You bring it, you're doing a tremendous service for investors and you're one of the very few people that I refer to their books often and look at the look at your site because you have all these research papers that keep coming out that I really enjoy and you put a lot of effort into a lot of free stuff. So all the power to you. Just keep growing and get bigger and make a lot more money. Yeah, no, appreciate it. And the only thing I will plug, because it also helps the marketplace, is we're now doing infrastructure for people that want to enter the ETF market. So, you know, if anyone out there has got like a mutual fund or SMA account, like, like we're trying to create a, and like lower the infrastructure costs on launching ETFs. Because because we've unfortunately ate those costs for a long time, right? And, and so if anyone out there is interested in the ETF marketplace and you want to try to access that, that's another thing we're, we're trying to leverage: low cost tech and affordability 
to try to offer other people a chance to to get into the ETF market. Right. Um, just because historically it's such a racket. Unfortunately, fortunately, we survived, uh, you know, to make it to here. But it's very challenging as a as a startup or like a new asset management company. And I don't even know if I would want to try to do this again. If I look back, no, years. you know, you just. I just remember we're running a small fund. The amount of money we're spending yeah. on auditors and and accounting exactly. and legal just to get a one piece yeah. of paper audit for something that was so simple was tens of thousands right. of dollars. And it was all in Schwab. Yeah. It was and it was nothing fancy. It was no complexity, no level three yep. pricing. It was it was you know yeah, it was. I know. God damn, the, you know yeah, the it's, cost of. Uh, it, it, it could be it could be because obviously there is monopolistic competition in the ETF business and asset manager in general. So obviously, if you're BlackRock or Vanguard, you probably have a lot of incentives to like, hey, let's make it where everyone has to hire 50 lawyers and like burn all kinds of money on fire because yeah. they don't really want competition. So I'm, I'm sure there's an element of that that goes on. I don't know. And so we're just trying to is like the we're almost like the insurgents in the business. We want to try to facilitate competition and we know we're not the only ones with the with good ideas but other people do too so so we're just trying to break that market open where boutiques and you know smaller players can can access the broad marketplace without you know chopping their legs off to get there man, beautiful uh, man at least that's the idea yeah that, great that's, a, that's great. another business we're starting to just because serendipitously we had to survive and now we can offer that that service to other people who you know, can maybe lean on our experience and cost structure to, to enter the market a little bit cheaper. Beautiful. So anyone out there wants to start an ETF, speak to us. You'll save a lot of money. And uh, you'll probably you'll probably be a lot happier with a lot less regulation, regulatory problems because learn on his mistakes. Westman, I want to yeah, thank Yeah, we still have to deal with them, but, but yeah. at least we'll deal with it uh, and coach you through it. <laughs> Wes, I want to thank you. And it's been way too long. Next time I'm down in Puerto Rico, I'm definitely stopping by you. And uh, we have yeah. to catch up. Happy uh, to host. It's been 10, 11 years since we've been, uh, you know, speaking. Or, but I'm so glad to see how you've grown and how you've given so much to the uh, investing community and how successful you've become. It's really just outstanding. I bet the most surprised person is your wife. So she, uh, yeah, yeah. You really, you really <laughs> freaked her out, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. She, uh, mm. I don't think she knew what she was getting into originally, but it all worked out uh, for her. You know, sometimes you get lucky. Yeah, uh, another one of those lucky married things. down, but it works out a little bit, you know. Right, gotcha. <laughs> all right, Wes. I'm still way too ugly though. Yeah, um, don't matter. Probably upgraded on that front. Doesn't matter. You're rich now. All right, folks. Yeah, well, getting there. <laughs> Dr. Wes Gray, <laughs> thanks so much for being on the show. I greatly appreciate it, man, and, and continued success to you. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it, Charles. Okay, man. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.